upon a star. Now we want you to share with us our latest and greatest dream. Disneyland. Just go to Action Park, there's no other park like it. Six Flags Great Adventure. It's not a world away. Paramount's Kings Island. We will officially open Universal Studios Florida. Hello, I'm Michael Eisner. Now, here is your host. Hi, Defunct Land guests. My name is Kevin Perger, and welcome to this episode of the Defunct Land podcast. Today, I'm joined by an incredibly talented and experienced guest with many years of experience in the theme park industry, Ron Schneider. Before this, however, we would usually do Blast from the Last, but last week's episode did not have a guest, so instead we will just go ahead and do our Top Dog and In the Doghouse segment. Top Dogs in the Beetlejuice Graveyard Reviews comment section are the crack team of Dutch linguists that tried to figure out what Beetlejuice said in the video from Wallaby Holland. I found out that I had a lot of Dutch viewers after the Captain EO episode and was not disappointed this episode when I asked for translators. So even though what he was saying was apparently gibberish, thank you Dutch-speaking viewers anyways. In the doghouse is no one. Everyone behaved themselves in the comments section this week, which is surprising, but good. It just means we can get on to our special guest star quicker. This podcast will be split into two episodes because we have so much wonderful information, so let's get to it. Today I'm joined by theme park actor and writer Ron Schneider. How are you doing, Ron? Just great, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Uh, Just to start off, um, before we get into our questions, I really want to tell the story of how I found you. Um, It was kind of odd. I was looking for when i was making the beetlejuice's graveyard review episode the uh, attraction that closed at universal studios a couple years ago i was looking at all the other times beetlejuice has appeared in universal studios parks and i uh, i stumbled upon fright nights which was the first year of halloween horror nights and found uh, i believe it's beetlejuice what beetlejuice's graveyard tours is that what it's called uh, well we called it the bates motel show oh uh, right right that was the, the inspiration for it. so it was uh there was a graveyard. There was a tour. Um, I'm uh, I am the script that I sent you, and that I have. I just called the Bates Motel show. Yes. So and that was with Beetlejuice, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, the Norman Bates, and the Blues Brothers. There was also a chainsaw wielding maniac and two uh, hot chicks. And it was just it was a wild show. And I we could only find part one. Um, so I'm going to put a plug in at the beginning, is if you have the full show somewhere hidden on your home VHS tapes, please send it to uh, me at kevinperger at gmail.com, and there's a uh, you can spell that with the link in the description um, to get us that, because we'd really like to see part two of the show. Part one is on YouTube, and I found part one, and I was looking at the comments. There was three comments, and I don't even know how many views, not a lot. And one of them was from someone uh, with the username DreamFinder, um, D-R-E-E-M finder and he and then he said i wrote this show i wrote and directed the show can you um can you send me part two of this and i was like wow this guy wrote the show i'd love to have him on the podcast if if it should be true and i thought well this is the worst trolling ever if he's lying that's not funny (laughs) so he must be telling the truth um and so i went on the youtube found his email uh emailed him and then within 30 minutes uh ron emails me back uh, did you find part two? Here's the script, and he sends me the entire script to the the Norman the Bates Motel show, and then I look into Ron even more um, behind his back um, and look him up, and I find his basically his resume in this one article about a new movie he's starring in and all these things that he's done, 
And so I slyly ask, hey, can you send me some of the things you've done in your resume just to make sure it was the same person? And it was Ron. And Ron has done so, so many things in the theme park industry. Um, What was it? Have you been 30 years, you say? 40. 40. And so I'm going to let Ron talk. Ron, can you tell me a little bit about everything you've done? Oh, well, um, I, uh, I, I grew up in Southern California, uh, and I was at Disneyland the day the park opened to the public, uh, July 18th, 1955. And from an early age, I was fascinated with magic and puppetry and ventriloquism and performing on stage. I did a lot of uh, theater when I was a child. And, um, but my heart, I kind of lost my heart to Disneyland and um, determined from an early age that I wanted to have a career uh, performing in theme parks. I just loved the form. I loved the idea that uh, the guest is the star of the show and I as a performer am drawing them into the story that we're telling together. Uh, So uh, as soon as I could, um, I got my first theme park job was at Magic Mountain in the summer of 1970 when it opened. Uh, I was a ride operator. I also that same year was uh, in wardrobe issue at Disneyland for two weeks for the Christmas parade. And that kind of started the ball rolling. I uh, uh, stayed at Magic Mountain for a, a number of years. I worked with wild animals there. I wrote spiels for the different rides. I got a job as a street performer doing a funny medicine pitch on the streets of Spillican Corners Crafts Village. I worked at Universal Studios as a tour guide in 1976. I worked at uh, various themed restaurants in Southern California. I was Henry VIII at 1520 AD Medieval Restaurants in uh, Los Angeles and San Diego. I worked for uh, Poppy Morgan at Poppy's Star Restaurant in Encino, California, which was a, was a variety of artists theme restaurant. We did old vaudeville sketches, who's on first, and slowly I turned. Um, Finally, I got my dream job, went to Disneyland in 1980. I was in the Golden Horseshoe Review, understudying Wally Bogue at Disneyland. At the same time, I was working at Universal Studios uh, as the figurehead for a $3 million theme restaurant called Wampopper's Wagon Works. Uh, I did that for uh, a couple of years. Then uh, Epcot Center opened, and Disney brought me out to Florida, where I created the uh, strolling Dreamfinder character for the Journey into Imagination, the Kodak Pavilion at Epcot. Uh, I did that for five years. I left there, went to um, uh, a theme dinner show in Kissimmee called Fort Liberty that I wrote, directed, and starred in. For a couple of years, um, I wrote uh, for Chuck E. Cheese for a couple of years, writing their stage shows and videos. Uh, then I went to uh, uh, Universal Studios uh, as a creative manager for the Celebrity Lookalikes. Uh, that turned into a full-time writing job for the studio. Uh, then they had a big change in management, and uh, all of the entertainment people slowly f- uh, f- faded away. I was the last one to go. Um, and uh, since then, I worked at, uh, at Titanic, the exhibition, for six years as an actor guide um, and writer for them. I worked at uh, a couple of other theme restaurants, one up in Canada in Banff Springs Resort. And um, the last uh, theme park job I had was uh, 2006 to 2010. I was uh, one of the uh, monsters at the Monsters Incorporated Laugh Floor at the Magic Kingdom, and that's uh, my career in a nutshell. Wow, that is a amazing and long uh, career in the theme park industry. So you were there on opening day at Disneyland, in the opening day to the public. Yep. Wow, and the, so you've just seen everything 
transform, develop. Uh, you've seen all the innovations from just the start, and you've been a part of it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, as far as live performance is concerned, uh, I did a lot of it, yeah. So take me back. What got you started in the theme park industry? Um, I Like I say, I went to Disneyland uh, t- about twice a year growing up and uh, always loved it, always had anticipated it going the night, night before I could never sleep. And we get to the park and uh, collect our tickets and, and run around. But when Walt passed away in 1966, it just struck me what a tremendous influence he'd been on my life. And uh, the next time I went to Disneyland, um, I uh, broke off from my family. And uh, I was walking around, sitting on Main Street, watching the people. And it just struck me that something was going on here that was more than people just going on rides. Uh, By this time, I'd done a bit of theater. And... uh, I recognized that this was a giant stage and that the show was about the people. It was their experience that um, the people were paying for was their personal experience. And this fascinated me. Uh, in 1970, I saw a show there called The Golden Horseshoe Review with Wally Bogue. And I saw this guy doing this show and I just wanted to be him. I just wanted to do what he was doing. And I immediately started researching Disneyland, its history, and how it worked. I would uh, sneak around backstage. I went to the Los Angeles Public Library, spent an entire day uh, reading all, everything I could find in the microfilm files about the history of Disneyland. And I would write to the, to the company, and I would ask them questions about operations. And um, just that the whole form fascinated me, and I, I decided... I realized that everything I was reading was about the park in general. There was nothing about live performance in the park. And the few shows, live shows that they had, the live shows were very, very simplistic. And I I just had the feeling there was more that could be done with this, that this was a a new art form that that had yet to be explored. And I wanted to learn as much as I could about it. And that's kind of driven me my whole life. I I was fascinated with the creative challenges of creating magic in the real world uh, within the guests, creating that magic experience within the guests, but doing it in the real world. Uh, So this study drove me to take all these jobs and to explore when I was in these jobs, everything I could learn about that guest experience and how it worked and how it was could be influenced uh, in a storytelling way, in a theatrical way. Uh, so I would, I, the jobs I took, um, I never lasted more than six years, I think is the longest time I lasted, lasted in any one job. Uh, and th- that was a Titanic, which was for me the, the greatest a laboratory that I could find because I, I had this, the guest to myself for an hour. I was telling this amazing story in this wonderful setting and uh, I could try different things and I had a constant audience coming through and I learned so much about storytelling and characterization and writing and performance and crowd control and all these things that go into making um, a themed uh, entertainment. Uh, but I love, on the other hand, my, my favorite uh, form is uh, themed dinner shows because you've got the audience sitting down for two hours and you're feeding them and you can, you have their undivided attention. You're not standing up in the middle of a hot theme park competing for their attention with the, with the roller coasters and, uh, and fast food. You have their undivided attention. You can cast them in a role and you can 
create this whole world around them for two hours. Uh, on top of which, uh, as a performer, you could sleep in all day and you don't have to be at the theater till four o'clock and then you do two shows, you go home, you're, you're home by 11. Um, so this whole atmosphere just fascinated me to the point where I always knew eventually I'd write a book. And um, so about five years ago, I actually uh, published a book called From Dreamer to Dreamfinder about um, about the this this the career that I've had, the the arc of my uh, education. It's a combination of memoirs and uh, the, and uh, textbook about how to write and perform and uh, about the form of theme parks and how that works. That's incredible. And you so you've done. You've worked at Six Flags, you've worked at uh, Universal, you've worked at Disney, you've worked at both Disneyland and Disney World, Universal Studios, Florida, and Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've, and you've worked at other exhibitions um, that are less traveled to, more more uh, niche, more specific, such as the Titanic expo- ex- exposition, um, and many other things. Um, and you've also not only performed at these, you've written for some of them. Um, right. So my... Uh, so what all have you written um, that not just performed at, but what, what I know you've written for a uh, fright nights. What, what other things have you written for theme parks? Uh, well, I started the, the first writing I did was um, kind of inadvertent. I was a ride operator at magic mountain back in 1971. Uh, I was on the grand Prix ride loading people into the uh, little cars. And one day a fella came by with a uh, microphone. He was installing sound systems and all the cue lines and he put a microphone next to our turnstile and I saw this and I just glommed out of that in a minute and that became my station and I I was standing there for uh, the entire summer at that microphone talking to the people the cue line I started by uh, ripping off jokes from the Jungle Cruise cue line and from the Golden Horseshoe and stuff that I'd heard on the Mike Keel boats at Disneyland but eventually I developed my own style and then I got overtime uh, working on other attractions around the park, and I wrote uh, spiels for uh, the Roundup and the Gold Rusher and the Log Jammer. And um, people uh, working during the day started using my material in the queue lines. So that was the first actual writing that I ever did, although it was you know kind of uh, on the job. It wasn't, it wasn't sitting down and, and penning anything. Um, but the first real writing I did was when um, Jay Stein was the head of the uh, president of uh, MCA Attractions. And they created a $3 million theme restaurant called, theme restaurant called Womp Hopper's Wagon Works uh, that was all themed around a wagon factory from the 1800s. Beautiful old uh, building. They, they built this with old barn wood, so it looked completely authentic. It had wagons, full-size wagons and stagecoaches hanging from the ceiling. And it was all built around this character of C.L. Womphopper, who was the crook who ran this wagon factory back in the 1800s. And uh, he was like the original used car salesman, a real sleazebag. Mm-hmm. And they had designed this place, and it was going to have the walls are going to be covered with um, the uh, ad, crooked ads and letters of complaint from people who had ripped off. Well, I was working at Magic Mountain one this summer uh, doing the medicine pitch, and Jay Stein and his wife, who were working on this restaurant, he saw me doing my medicine pitch, and he turns to his wife, and he goes, this guy's C.L. Wompopper. So uh, they arranged to have me come down to uh, Universal Studios and talk to them about this project. And uh, he showed me a, the, the menu and uh, all the plans that they had. He said, we'd like you to play this character. 
Well, I'd been working in theme restaurants for about 10 years at this point. And I said to him, well, you know, you should make all the waiters uh, salesmen and all the busboys mechanics and all the seating hosts should be sales managers. And he said, okay, you're creative manager. <laughs> so, uh, so now I'm in this new position and I want to theme this thing out. I want to have the pe I want to hire talented people, you know, because Hollywood's full of them and most of them are unemployed. And I want them to, to be playing these characters as they're serving the guests. And so uh, I wrote this very thick notebook full of material. Some of it was okay. Some of it wasn't very good uh, that I gave out to the people who were working there. And um, we opened with the stuff. And uh, eventually uh, I kind of quit as a creative manager because – uh, Universal wanted me, Jay Stein wanted me watching everybody and approving everything, and that's not my style. I like to hire talented people and let them go, which is what Walt Disney used to do. And uh, what happened was I inspired my people the right way, and it, it took off on its own, and we became like the biggest party place in the San Fernando Valley that summer. And the food was great, and the music was great, and uh, we had this wild atmosphere. So that was the first writing that I ever did um, worked at uh, doing Dreamfinder, created the Dreamfinder strolling character, and I had to create business for him. And I was creating on the fly uh, comic bits that I could do with the dragon and with the guests that would involve them in the imagination theme of the building. But um, for, after a couple of years of doing that, uh, I got bit again by the writing bug, and I started to develop treatments for things and everyone all the entertainment entertainers at Epcot Center were doing this everybody wanted to get known as being a creative person everybody in theme parks likes to be Walt Disney and so they all everybody writes things and submits ideas and circulates scripts and uh, they get ripped off at first that happened to me a couple times I got ripped off real bad things I wrote where other people put their names on them and uh, but finally I wrote one script for a uh, while again a traveling salesman character because I love those um, and the head of entertainment at Epcot Center was a friend of mine. He took that script and uh, he left the company, went to work for Robert Earl creating themed dinner shows. Uh, Robert Earl had uh, King Henry's Feast and Mardi Gras. He created Hard Rock Cafes and Planet Hollywood. He wanted to open a themed dinner show in Kissimmee. Well, my friend took the script, showed it to Robert Earl, and I got the job of writing and directing for, uh, for, for Fort Liberty. And uh, that led to... Um, inadvertently led to me being uh, hired on at Universal Studios. They were going to have all this, the strolling lookalikes. Blues Brothers, Laurel and Hardy, W.C. Fields, Mae West, and uh, the Marx Brothers. And uh, the fellow who was in charge of that decided these people should be doing something. They had the lookalikes in Universal Hollywood, but they never really did anything. They just signed autographs, posed for pictures. But they, he wanted the, these people to be perf per performing. And he knew that I knew these characters because we'd worked together. So they, they got me in at Universal Studios. I also did a bunch of writing for um, Disney MGM Studios for Streetmosphere uh, before the park opened. I did a whole Bible for them of material for the different characters. And um, but I so I did the uh, wrote for the lookalikes, created the Blues Brothers show, which is still running and wrote for the Marx Brothers and the Blues Brothers and all these other characters. Uh, when the first uh, Halloween event came, Fright Nights, uh, Jay Stein wanted a couple of shows. And so they came to me because I knew I could write. And uh, I wrote the, the shows for Fright Nights. And when that 
uh, event ended, I was uh, moved up to the entertainment trailer and just became a full-time uh, show writer for the company. And uh, I wound up writing uh, street shows, stage shows, stall material, ADA materials, uh, special events, dedications. Um, and uh, just there was a wonderful, wonderful time at Universal back then. Those first three years were just great. And uh, that pretty much was the... Um, the the end of my writing for the corporations i wrote uh, we did a themed dinner show up in up in canada up in banff canada and uh did some uh, work with uh, the monsters incorporated laugh floor but that was pretty much writing on the fly i wasn't uh, actually a writer i was a performer but all the performers ad-libbed and, and improvised so that's it in a nutshell well that's amazing and so i have a question here from um one of my reddit friends the space ranger he says uh, did you ever have any trouble figuring out what to write? Uh, if so, what helped you get over any writer's block you may have had? Excellent question. Um, like I say, we are creating magic within the real world. And so I came to define themed entertainment as dealing creatively with operational realities. And the thing that makes uh, writing for themed entertainment easy is you have the realities to uh, push against. So if you have, uh, for example, if, if you have a particular space that you need a show for, you get your inspiration from the space. What are its limitations? What are its assets? What's going to look good here? If you're getting a demand for a show for marketing or promotions, or a half-baked idea from exec some executive that he's got, and he wants somebody to flesh it out. That happened a lot at Universal Studios. Uh, if you've got particular characters that have a particular agenda and you need a show for them, that agenda will dictate what that show will be about. And so there's, there's inspiration uh, everywhere when you're writing in the themed, uh, themed environment, particularly in the corporate environment, because they give you all these limitations to push against. And so writing for Dreamfinder was easy. I took the themes and ideas that are presented in the ride and um, found ways to uh, communicate them and in involve the guests personally in those, uh, in those ideas and in those concepts. Uh, writing for the Marx Brothers is easy because you have the inspiration of everything they did in their films, but now uh, you're pushing against reality. You have to do these in the real world. And so you look for opportunities on the back lot, uh, the, the settings that would suggest a uh, shtick that the Marx Brothers might do if they had a movie set there. Um, so the, the inspiration is everywhere. Uh, it comes from the characters, comes from the management, comes from all the different aspects of reality that you have to deal with. So it's almost easier um, in an environment where there's all these other you know, ideas coming out than just if you were to start with nothing and and try to come up with something yeah if you uh, the blank page of course is a terrifying thing but if your blank stage uh if your black black page uh, blank page rather is um a brownstone street with a lot of stoops on it and um a curb uh suddenly certain ideas will start to uh suggest themselves so let's move on to the show that brought me to you, Beetlejuice at Fright Nights. Just tell me your experience writing for Fright Nights and writing for Beetlejuice. Well, uh, I'd been uh, working with the character for some time. We got the rights to do Beetlejuice. 
And uh, we, my boss, actually, Danny Burslaff, was our first Beetlejuice. We put him in the costume and sent him out in the park and filmed him just to see how people would interact with him. And we had uh, some amazing people. Our, our first uh, full-time Beetlejuice was um, – uh, oh, good, his name's gone. But uh, D, D. Baker uh, is a uh, very, very popular voiceover artist in Hollywood, does a lot of animated shows. And he was our first Beetlejuice. And he was the Beetlejuice we had, I think, that was actually closest to Michael Keaton. And um, so we had him going around. Uh, when the first Halloween events came up at Universal Studios, I think it was Jay Stein, the president of the company, same fellow who I worked with at Wampoppers, um, who had the idea that he wanted to put a show over by the Bates Motel. But it wasn't in front of the Bates Motel. Uh, there was a little space there was a path that would take you from inside of Universal out to the back entrance of Hard Rock Cafe, which was actually outside of the park. That path ran by the Bates Motel, and once you got past the Bates Motel, there was this little lawn behind the Bates, Bates itself that when you stood on the sidewalk, you could look uh, up at the uh, Psycho House up on the hill right in front of you. And Jay's idea was to put a show uh, behind the Bates Motel that, that would be um, kind of themed to the hard rock. They wanted to, he wanted to have a show with headstones of uh, the dead rock and roll stars. And, and um, that's the idea that was handed to me on a piece of paper and said, they said, we want this, show, we want a show there for this. And so that the little path, a little space, uh, you could get a show in there, maybe an audience of 40 people would fit. They'd all be standing up, and you'd do a little show back there. And so uh, I came up with an idea of um, using uh, Beetlejuice as a, as a guide that would talk about the headstones. And the headstones would be all of the rock and roll stars who had uh, didn't know when to say when, let's put it that way. Uh, so there'd be uh, gravestones for uh, Elvis and... Uh, uh, all the other uh, ones who passed away, OD, John Belushi would be in there. And, um, and then the, the finale of the show, I wanted to run a cable from the, uh, the mother's window in front of the Bates, Motel, uh, Bates Mansion. This cable, black cable, would run from the, that window back over the audience's head and behind them. And uh, I wanted to do uh, rig up a dummy of mother that would come flying out of that window and scare the hell out of the audience and fly past them. And I thought that would be, uh, you know, that could be the show. It's a little thing. So I uh, did up a treatment for that and um, sent it up to my boss, who was Neil Miller, was in charge of entertainment at the time. And Neil said, that's great. Make it bigger. And so uh, I started looking, what else could I add? What else could I add? And um, I came up with the idea of digging a tunnel from inside the Bates Motel to one of the graves, and I wanted uh, a decomposed Elvis to come up out of the grave and to sing something. And uh, so I thought, what could he sing? So I, because I'm good at uh, doing parody lyrics, so I looked at some Elvis stuff, and then I got hit upon the song "Heartbreak Hotel," and I thought, my God, he could sing a commercial for the Bates Motel. <laughs> so I wrote, "Well, since my life is ended." I found a new place to dwell 
It's under the stairs with Mama Bates at the Bates Motel. I tell you, you'll love the decor, baby. You'll dig the plumbing. The tub's so comfy, you could die. <laughs> and uh, wrote a couple other verses for that and sent that to Neil Miller. And he says, yeah, we can dig a tunnel for you. We can get all this, uh, make it bigger. So now I'm looking at this thing, if he wants me to make this bigger. And only 40 people are going to be able to see this thing at any one time. I said, you know, you know, if I, he wants me to make it bigger, I'm going to move the concept out and just put it in the Bates Motel parking lot. And so uh, I gave no consideration to budget. I gave no consideration to crowd control. I just wanted to tell the story. You know, when I'm, when I'm writing a treatment, I don't think about the audience. I think about the person sitting in the office reading the treatment and communicating to them. And I don't worry about the practicalities of it. I'm just telling the story because you, the, the whole idea of writing for theme parks is the shows will evolve, will always evolve because you impact, you're impacted by budget, production, the realities of casting, the realities of adding costume and makeup and sound and lights. All these things cause the show to evolve and you have to evolve with them. So I don't worry about that at this point. I just worry about telling the story. So I said, okay, we're going to put a, a dozen graves out in front of the parking lot of the Bates Motel. And um, if the show's going to have music, our musical stars at Universal, they're the Blues Brothers. And so I hit upon the idea of the Blues Brothers checking into the Bates. And Beetlejuice doing the graveyard tour. And if we're going to be in the Bates Motel, we got to have Norman Bates. And uh, the, we got to find a reason for the Blues Brothers to give a concert. And who else could be in the motel at the same time that could give us a plot point, give us some violence, give us, you know, give us some excitement. And um, so I just started writing. And um, that's how the show evolved. Uh, the, I, I gave this treatment to Neil, and he, and he approved the thing, and they spent a fortune. Uh, putting this thing together. We had bleachers. We had like five, six bleachers set up uh, ringing the property. Um, they actually dug me two tunnels, one for Elvis uh, that Beetlejuice also used to make his entrance. And then we had one for um, a chainsaw-wielding maniac who was uh, in room two uh, blasting heavy metal music and really pissing everybody off. So what happened was that uh, we went to complain. We pounded on the door. He opened the door. Uh, we stabbed him in the chest. There was blood everywhere. Slammed the door. He's dead. But uh, he comes back as the Blues Brothers are trying to start their concert. Um, Jake blows him away with a shotgun. Um, that kills him, blows him back into his room. Door closes. But then the end of the show, he's, we've, he's been stabbed. He's been shot. He comes back with a chainsaw, threatens the audience with a chainsaw. We throw him into one of the open graves. We throw in a stick of dynamite, and we blow him up. That's the end of the show. Uh, the Blues Brothers uh, sang a couple numbers. We had these hot chicks that were traveling with them. Uh, they were singing back up. And uh, my favorite part of the show was I had Mother Bates come out and sing back up with the two girls. So we had a terrific actor. Paul Sanders was our Norman Bates. He was wonderful. We actually had the costume, Norman Bates costume, that Anthony Perkins wore in Psycho 4 the TV movie, um, which is the one that the, the, uh, the sets in Florida were built for. Um, 
And that's the way that the show evolved. It was a tremendous uh, success. We added performances. Uh, people who saw it remembered it. And uh, the following year, um, uh, Jay Stein wanted that same show, but uh, there was a change in management at Universal Studios. And um, the new people coming in uh, didn't, uh, didn't seem to want it. And so it was the last, first, and last and first and last time that that show was seen. Uh, but I'm very, very proud of the script, very proud of everyone that participated in it. Um, our uh, Beetlejuice was John, uh, uh, I can't remember his last name, and uh, the Blues Brothers were uh, Dan Meisner and Keith Kobe, who were our A-team Blues Brothers. They did a wonderful, wonderful job with it. Uh, I wish I could remember the name of the two hot chicks. But uh, it was just one of the great experiences for me and one of the things I'm proudest of having written. Evan Freistack from Facebook asks, how raunchy could the scripts be for Fright Nights? <laughs> um, well, we were, we, there was no precedent. Um, there was nobody looking over our shoulder. The only line that they made me change, <laughs> um, and it's in the script I sent you, but you'll notice it isn't in performance. When, um, when, Norm, when uh, Jake meets... Uh, Norman, <laughs> uh, he says, uh, uh, you must be the master of this fine motel. Master. And Norman says, Bates. <laughs> they made me cut that. So I had him say, you must be the master of this fine hotel, mister. And so that's as close as I could get. Uh, that's a fantastic pun. I don't know why they didn't let you keep that. Because they're just... Being careful, just being careful. But it's, you know, management's a funny thing. Uh, we were at one of the final dress rehearsals for the show, and um, the new head of attractions for the parks, the fellow I used to work with when I was a tour guide at university, he worked his way up through the company. And he was sitting next to me in the bleachers for that one of the final dresses. And Norman comes walking out uh, at the top of the show and says, Good evening, everyone. I'm normal. Uh, Norman and uh, this fella turns to me and says you know nobody knows who Norman Bates was nobody's going to get this and I said you've got a half mile away from where we're sitting you've got an entire building dedicated to Alfred <laughs> Hitchcock and Psycho I think they're going to know who Norman Bates is <laughs> and of course the audience died at that joke they loved that joke and they, they they got the whole show um now it's been you know it's been decades since and i don't know how well it's going to go over i mean i a lot of my life nowadays is people saying to me uh, look 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 honey this is this is the original dream finder and they go who's the dream finder um and so time passes but uh, you know you're, you're right uh, to you're right to your audience you're right to the themes that you're presented and um that uh, I think that this, I personally think Psycho is timeless and people always know who Norman Bates is. At least certain people always know who Norman Bates is, people who are film fans. Um, and the you didn't have to know Psycho and Norman Bates to get the show. The, the Blues Brothers and everything like that, uh, they're, they're all archetypes. And so the show works in that sense. Uh, by the way, you said that that, uh, Alfred Hitchcock is in the script. He is. I did the voice of Alfred Hitchcock, and I also did the voice of Mother. And so, Beetlejuice at Fright Nights. I, 
just Beetlejuice in the parks in general. Um, did you, did you love the character of Beetlejuice? Uh, did you did you love the movie, or was it just something that you they were they gave you the property and you thought, well, this is interesting and I can write about this? Well, of course, I loved the movie and I loved what uh, Michael Keaton did with it. Um, and the character the character in the park, uh, I loved having being able to have him run loose. Um, we had uh, one of the gags I gave to a, uh, a D to do was he had a he had a rubber a small rubber worm in the corner of his uh, cheek when he would run around with people, and uh, he would go in to uh, grab a girl and go like he's going to kiss her, and then he let the little rubber worm pop out of his mouth, <laughs> scare the hell out of people. I also gave him a little squeak toy he had in his pocket. And uh, he would conceal this in his hand, and um, he'd run over to a garbage can and thrust his arm into the garbage can like he's fishing around, and then he'd bring his hand out and squeaking the squeak toy. <laughs> and it sounds like he caught something in there that he was going to eat. Um, I gave him a Mickey Mouse ears hat uh, to wear. You know, Universal were always making fun of Disney. And so I gave him a Mickey Mouse ears hat, but I cut um, teeth marks out of one of the ears uh, so that was a gag that we had for some time. Now, I love the character. The um, I'm the one who came up with the idea of Beetlejuice with the Ghostbusters, uh, and I did a treatment for that and uh, circulated through the park, and next thing I knew, the people in operations ripped my idea off, uh, put together a really uh, pretty lame show with, uh, with them dancing. Uh, for the problem with doing Beetlejuice in the parks was that people people who don't know really how to write anything new tend to regurgitate what we saw in the movie mm -hmm. I consider this to be a waste of the audience's time we've seen that we've seen that these characters have a life beyond what we saw in the movie and so why regurgitate what's in the movie so every time anybody does Beetlejuice nowadays what are you going to hear you're going to hear Harry Belafonte mm -hmm. well there's a thousand pieces of more bizarre music that we haven't heard and why wouldn't Beetlejuice use those um, I was writing for um, Disney I created a the Mickey Mouse uh, uh, Mickey's Birthday Land Express it was the train ride back in uh, on Mickey's uh, 60th birthday when they built uh, Mickey's Birthday Land in the back of the Magic Kingdom. And I was brought in to create the train experience for the steam train that would take you back to Mickey's Birthday Land. And we had uh, setups with characters along the way. We had uh, we had the, the Mad Tea Party was set up with a sign hanging by the table saying, Gone to Mickey's Birthday Land. And we had um, uh, the Seven Dwarfs. We, uh, we had Goofy in his car on his way to Mickey's Birthday Land with a present. And one of the things that I wanted to do was I wanted to have a railroad crossing, you know, with a, with a bar that came down and a wigwag sign and a bell ring. And uh, waiting for the train to pass would be Cruella DeVille's car. And crammed into Cruella DeVille's car, there'd be, of course, Cruella behind the wheel looking very angry. But crammed into the back were going to be all the other Disney villains, Captain Hook and Maleficent. And Chernabog, the big demon from Fantasia, would be crammed into the back seat. And all of them looking very uncomfortable and very angry. And they're waiting for the train to go by. As you go by, you'd see this scene. It would be very funny. So I suggested this. And um, one of the top guys at Disney, a fellow I respect a great deal, actually said in a meeting, well, the Disney villains would never do that. 
Well, of course, the next year, Roger Rabbit comes out, and suddenly we find out that these people are all actors. They're just actors. They have lives. We don't have to regurgitate what was in the movies. We can have them doing other things. So that when you see Roger Rabbit, you see Snow White and the Wicked Queen going shopping for apples. You know, it's yeah. th these are all char these are all just characters. They're all just stories, and we can do anything we want with them. If we're going to do a if we're going to do a stage show based around Dick Tracy, like they did when, in 1989, when the studio opened, they had a stage show about Dick Tracy, in which was its own story. They didn't regurgitate the movie, and it was a great show. But we're going to do Beauty and the Beast five times a day, same story, same characters, same plot, and we can't do it as well. Because the teapot's going to become a, a dancing crate, you know, on stage. It's, um, it's, uh, we waste a lot of the guests' time by trying to regurgitate things they've already seen, which the guests find, them, find themselves suddenly in the position of being a detective. They're trying to discover what's the connection between what they know and what they're seeing on stage. And it shouldn't be that way. It's a different medium. The story needs to, the stories need to evolve. And um, this is true with Beetlejuice. He has his own life, so let him live outside the movie. So that's it for this episode of the Defunct Land Podcast. Join us in a few days for part two, where we will discuss more of Ron's work, including his tenure as Dreamfinder at Epcot. Until then, don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and thank you for visiting Defunct Land. <laughs>